Previously on Napcast. The pace of working a pandemic. Uh, we must think on your feet, and that means also making things work on the go with a new colleague. <laughs> um, I was put in a position of taking more leadership in the classroom and, and in my relationships with children and families. Um, I had to consider how my voice was, in, was impacting others in the classroom. Um, that means having a voice or lacking having one. Hmm. Um, by being a person of color, I'm also making space for my new colleagues of color to have a voice. Um, things like that are always on my forefront of my on my work. Mm-hmm. Um, by getting retriggered by events, am I able to be there emotionally for my colleagues? Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been learning to understand that the expectations of a fair exchange um, can look different to different people. And I'm very vocal about that now. Mm. I'm trying to anticipate others' needs and my needs, um, but not in a way that will be stressing about it. Um, if my colleagues from a dominant culture, for example, I've been expressing how that can look like in the classroom and how the space one occupies differs. Um, it's hard work. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> but I've been feeling more solid and grounded in my work than before, and all these challenges have helped me. Um, Help me growth, all this overdue growth that it had to happen. I think as a black woman, the world already expects so much of us. Mm-hmm. We're expected to be like stronger at times when we shouldn't have. As a black woman, the odds are already like primarily stacked against us. So. Yeah. A lot of people are going to look at that as a deficit or, or, oh, you didn't have structure in your life. But we learned so much more amazing things right how to be resilient how to be responsive um is there one thing that comes off the top of your head where you're like damn my childhood maybe i'm not the best organizer right you shouldn't don't look at my desk because that's not a (laughs) strong point but you're like i learned this from my childhood um i think one of the most things i learned from my childhood was to keep going and Mm. how to be flexible you know um a lot of times I can fly by the seat of my coattail, not that I want to or that I need to, but if things change, you know, I can get with the script, you know, real quick. And I think being an educator, that's very important because sometimes, you know, you create these big projects or you go into these big activities with kids and they might not want to do it and they might just want to drop it. And then, boom, you're having to, you know, change everything, add this in, take this out, just kind of figure things out. Yeah, for sure. I think that as educators, it's our job to ask questions to make sure that we are we are voicing that we are there for families. And I know that as as a single mom, I was a single mom for a very long time. Educators, our primary caregivers didn't ask those questions like, "What is your home like?" life like or what resources do you need or how can we support you it was just like well if you need anything let us know but my prideful self i I have been very independent for many many years right we all that's all of us right it's across the board uh, if you are a voice of color, I know like my mom would never say anything, and I'm right. I can have a broken leg, and I'm like, nah, I'm good. Right? What you talking about? Like, <laughs> let's go get this money. Yeah. Continue. Yeah, but so, so it's, it wasn't until someone was like, "Hey, do you need help with this?" It's just like, well, even if I do, I don't, I don't know <laughs> that I want to say yes. But but still, just that continuous push is like, hey, I'm here. Hey, like, let us know or hey what's going on or just like a simple how's your day going even that or what's your energy level like today just those simple questions that that uh determination for connection like true genuine authentic connection damn okay preaching out here (laughs) (laughs) that's important that that's what i would demand one thing I've been learning is how to stand up and how to share my voice more and my opinions. And a lot of things just come from learning, you know, sharing with people and explaining to them why things are done the way they're done, coming from like where I come from. Um, I recently read a story about 
a woman and she's a black social worker and she said that there was a girl who came in and she had burns down her back mm. now being african-american you know when we get our box braids our hair is dipped in hot water yep and so because there was this black social worker who's there who understood that she was able to advocate for this family mm. like no this isn't child abuse this is just something we yeah. do you know that helps our hair but preserves it you know makes it look beautiful and you know occasionally things like this happen but it's really just that understanding and just you know advocating and you know sharing and telling stories and you know explaining why i am the way i am and my experiences that i've had i guess and i really want to emphasize explaining not necessarily justifying who you are in in the foundation of of how you grew up on right yeah because i know we all have grown up like differently like my um, the way I might explain things or the way I might view things might be completely different than the way you view things or how yeah. you see them just based on how we've grown up. Well, black people can be different. Yes, it's very it's very intimidating being here and in and, and working with families who don't look like mine. Um, but regardless I am going to start getting comfortable with being uncomfortable because that's just that's just what it's going to have to take. Um, <laughs> And they're gonna have to do the same with me because I don't look like them. Their children don't look like me. But I know I am confident in my knowledge and my experiences that I have something to offer. That's why I'm here. All right, y'all. So everyone knows that childcare is essential. We're some of the most influential people out there. Yet, we are often overworked and underpaid. So how can you work full time, have hobbies, Show your friends and family love, self-care, and also fine-tune your skills and grow more in-depth? That's where we come in. These NAPCasts are designed to help you learn on the go, hear another perspective, spark debate, <laughs> heck, even agree with us, but honestly remind you that you're not alone. We live in a complex world, so allow us to challenge your perspective. So are your headphones in? Did you turn the volume up? All right, now, good. Let's get it. So what's up, brother? How's it going, Alfonso? It's going good. Really good. Going with the flow, you know? I feel you. I feel you. So you're new to Hilltop, and now everybody has heard your voice. So explain, you know, give your name, give your pronouns, and, and what you do here at Hilltop. Yeah, my name is Alfonso, um, pronouns he, him, and I'm the new senior manager of family engagement and resources. Cool, man. Y'all, I'm super pumped. I'm super pumped you're here. I'm super pumped. It's, it's, it's new families, it's new children, it's new educators. It's, it's an exciting time to be at Hilltop right now. We're building, growing, and changing the culture, and, and you're such an integral part of that. So I appreciate that. I got another brother, you know, another brother from another mother on the team over here. <laughs> um, like I said, you're new to Hilltop and your position is actually new to us as well. So I kind of wanted to pick your brain around that. But first, I just want to hear about the process here. So think back about, you know, the last couple of weeks you've been here, reflect back on the hiring process, your first few days to where you're at right now. How was it? How, was, how has the transition been? And how can we support you? And just like, what's keeping you here? Um, well, I'm doing as good as I can be. You know, the transition has been something to get used to. Um, I think it's, you know, just that a time to adjust and, and get to where I would like us to be. Um, I just counting on a lot of feedback right now. And I'm working on being able to receive as much as I can and then implementing what is needed, turning like my words into actions. Um, what is keeping me here? the end result. To be honest, I, I miss my old responsibilities and not knowing what is going to happen gives me anxiety, right? But it's bigger than me. And I know that when the work is done, it's all going to be worth it. You know, that's something we touched upon with our other new educators we chatted with, both the anxiety part uh, and the it's bigger than me part. So for me, it's it's to help this organization and other organiz organizations I partner with through our Educator Institute to just have that shift in perspective 
uh, a major win I had a with one of my colleagues earlier this year after years of working with them. It was super simple, right? It wasn't this big, great, momentous thing. It was just super simple. And it was just to stop getting them to automatic, automatically say no each time I introduce a new perspective. And when people think of this social justice work, they, they think 5,000 foot level and they go straight to changing whole, whole systems, which you know is important, but there's little steps along the way that I always try to highlight and always try to remind people to do. You know, and the first one for me is just to come to this work with an open heart and an open mind. So I'm gonna throw it back to you. What's personally driving you in this work? I think it's, again, the, the families, the children. Um, and I say families first because they, that, that's who we start with, right? The families, um, as much as we do this for the children, you can't help the children as much as you can if the family's not involved, right? If it's not a holistic approach. And that's what I'm just trying to kind of get to it's just making sure I know what they need without assuming what they need and I'm not stepping on toes or I'm not you know um, being insensitive to the way I'm approaching it or the way I'm asking um, and then to be honest with you I think it's just when it comes to the organization or with anybody for that matter it's making sure that we have just the the trust that I'm trying my best here I want to help please assume that it is with my best intentions that I question things, that I, you know, ask questions that might feel a little bit uncomfortable. I'm trying to get us to a point where everybody trusts whatever kind of input we say, because they know that it is for the greater good. It is for the success of our children and our families. So not a lot of programs know or have a family resource and engagement manager. And if they do, I feel like those responsibilities are typically folded into other people's jobs. Beyond just making sure, you know, the kids show up on time, et cetera, et cetera, what other things are you responsible for? And what are things programs should consider when it comes to addressing the needs of families and caregivers? Well, for me, my responsibility is there to engage with students, the staff, the families, and the community. You know, it's up to me to make sure that everybody has what they need. I try to be as holistic as possible. I like the, you know, it takes a village mentality. Yeah. If we work together, have common goals and make a conscious effort to meet them. We all win. It makes it better for you, for the families and the community. And that's the place I want to be at. Hmm. But not everyone sees it like that. So when you, when you meet that resistance of what's in it for me, how are you explaining that or giving a different narrative or a different account to show people that we all kind of need to give up something in order to gain a lot. And then nobody is coming for your money, for your job, for your liberties, you know, for your freedom. Right. You know, some educators or families or communities need specific support than others. Yeah, it's tough. Honestly, it's kind of the barrier I've, I've kind of seen throughout my whole life. Some places it's more than others. Um, but again, it's just that I really hope I, I convey the most positive intent as possible I really just try to do a lot of self-reflection and just, am I approaching it the best way? Am I acknowledging other people's feelings and desires, right? I get it, losing power, nobody wants to do that. Nobody wants to give up any kind of, you know, anything, right? Just because you wanna make somebody else feel better, I get it, but I just want them to know that if we all feel better, we all win. And it's just me continuing to push that discomfort and continuing to have those conversations, even though tensions might be high, I need all of us to kind of be able to see from the same perspective. And even though it's not happening to you, understand that it happens to others and their experience is different than yours. So we have to just be as open and as empathetic as possible just to live outside of ourselves and see outside of ourselves. You might not like this analogy, but when you were talking, I was like, oh, okay, you know, ducks fly together like the Anaheim ducks. <laughs> right, yeah, it's true. <laughs> um, mighty ducks. Yeah, I say that because you're an L.A. fan, so, you know, I have to throw that in there. <laughs> of course, you know, it's funny. I grew up in L.A., uh, but the Mighty Ducks were in Anaheim. But that movie, man, it made me a Ducks fan. I, I, I feel bad. That's one of the few L.A. teams I don't um, follow, but go Ducks. <laughs> ducks fly together. Yeah. Yeah, you said you said something about reflection, so I want to take it there. You know, you're you're a male, you're a male 
educator of color. Your family grew up um, only speaking Spanish. So reflect to me and talk to me about that experience and how has your experience and I guess your, just your experience of your family navigating these systems of care for children, how has that shaped your approach in, in your work today in ECE? It was challenging at times, you know, but at, but not much different than what a lot of children go through today. I felt like my educators weren't like me, so they couldn't understand if, you know, they did speak Spanish, they usually weren't males. I often had to serve as translator for my parents, having to have conversations with them about things that maybe were too mature for me, but they needed to understand. And I was kind of the only way to bridge that language gap. Um, Although for parent-teacher conferences, they were a little to my benefit, right? I kind of was able to manipulate the narrative in my favor. Uh -huh. um, but, you know, it's, it's something that I think a lot of just children have to go through today, right? Especially for the very few Spanish-speaking male educators we do have. I just think of like when I was younger, I gravitated to them. Um, that's the people that I thought understood me. Um, so I felt like I could go to them for support. I wanted to be like them. Um, to be that advocate for children, because sometimes they might not have those people in their life. To be that person that enriches their lives and gives them the tools to succeed in a world that honestly sometimes isn't built for them, it's built for them to fail. Appreciate that, man. Um, all right, so so to wrap up, I kind of want to hit you with this question, and, and hopefully you can respond both in Spanish and in English. So if you can translate in both, that would be great. And for this question. I just want to focus on your truth, man. So in, in English, the question I have is, what are, what are the unspoken expectations we, we as your, your colleagues in this field, place on your shoulder that burden um, Latinx educators and admin? And then in order to at least attempt to translate this, <laughs> right? So help me out here. Uh, yeah. ¿Cuáles son las expectativas implícitas que egobien a los educadores latinos? Um, yeah, let me let me kind of just try to phrase every time I got to translate, I got to like think about it in, in Spanish first and then see what it sounds like. Um, but uh, so what are let me just try to get it straight. It's what are the expectations of me as a, a Spanish speaking educator kind of? No, what are what are some of the the unspoken expectations that we we place on your shoulder just because you're a Latinx educator and have it. Um, I think for starters is is the 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 expectation that I have to help those like me, right? That I know everything that they're going through, that I know all of those struggles that they are feeling or going through. Um, I don't. Right, especially sometimes um, to my Spanish speaking community, it's the like, hey, you speak Spanish, go talk to them to see, you know, this. When a lot of the times it's like, they speak English too, you know, you can totally just like communicate to them in the same way. Um, and I think sometimes because of that, um, you do lose something in translation, right? Like, even now, I'm still kind of thinking about like the conversation, the question that you asked me, I'm trying to translate it. And like, how do I make it so it's the same message? in both languages when sometimes things don't necessarily translate like that, right? Um, so I guess to try to translate this question, the question is in Spanish, ¿Cuáles son um, las cosas que yo tengo que hacer que se esperan porque soy Latino ex o Latinex por cualquier cosa que yo pueda, como ya ven, ni me puedo comunicar bien, pero ¿cómo puedo yo? ¿Cuáles son las cosas que esperan de mí? Porque soy latino, pues, y tratar de, de, de ubicarme con la demás gente latina. Did that, see, I felt like it sounded a lot longer than what yeah. you asked me, just because I was trying to piece it together in the same way that you were trying to, at least I think, ask the question. Yeah. Um, but I also, some of the, you know, the most um, relationship building things that I do is speaking Spanish with, you know, that parent that, like, oh, you speak Spanish too? And then I got into conversation with somebody recently and it was like, oh, you're from this part of Mexico, you know? Oh, there's, my family's from this part of Mexico too, no way. And it was this really small world where it's like, wow, you know, thousands of miles away, um, we are here together again, the same people from the same place. It's like, and now we're in Seattle, but still people that I resonate with and that, you know, know a little bit of where I come from. Does that kind of answer your question? Absolutely. 
So just to piggyback off of that, um, last thing, promise, is what advice do you have for for Latinx educators and admin who, who might just be starting out in this field? I think is push boundaries, um, especially cultural and traditional ones. I think for me, um, one thing that was hard for me growing up, especially working with children is the, in my family, I come from a very traditional Mexican family. So like, you know, machismo runs rampant in my family, right? This male like dominant, I work for, for money. You know, I work with my hands. And anybody who doesn't is, you know, maybe a little less than, or, or if you work with children, that's for women, I don't even deal with the, the, the children part, right? And I feel like growing up, we miss that, like, that importance that is like, you can shape the youth, you can like, you have so much power in just being able to, to teach children that at least I felt that maybe we neglected or um, we're even maybe a little ignorant too because we thought, oh, women work with children. And the reality is males need to work with children just as much because we can give, you know, um, male children of color just the same empowerment that I felt or that I needed growing up. All right. I appreciate you, brother. Of course. Appreciate you. Thanks, Mike. Yes, sir. Hey, Teresa, how's you, how you doing? I'm fine, thank you. Good, good, good. So I know who you are, but let, let the listeners know, who am I actually talking to? Well, my name is Teresa Alfonso Mendez. Um, I go by she, her. Mm -hmm. And um, I also should probably give my indigenous name. Absolutely. Smiles yeah. with her eyes yeah. given to me, as well as one who camps good. It's changed among, mm. uh, uh, on time. It's ah, changed, yeah. yeah. <laughs> So you said you're indigenous. What a uh, tribe? I am a crow. I'm mm. a river crow. There are mm -hmm. two crows. I'm a river crow from Montana. There you go. Yeah. Mm -hmm. All right. What part of Montana? Um. The, well, Billings is the biggest city near it, but Crow Agency, Montana. Okay. Gotcha. Because I'm from New York. So I'm like, is that a right. state, Montana? What, what is that? Okay. <laughs> right. I always have to give the bigger city because people uh, see it on a map. So. There you go. <laughs> So you you know this, but Hilltop has been around for about fifty years. Um, fifty years in January, so we're super excited to to celebrate our gold anniversary, or silver, platinum, something like that. But anyways, um, and you know we've done things a specific way for all of those years, and we're slowly transforming as an organization, um, as individuals. And I feel like we're doing this transparently. We're doing it via our NAPCAS, our workshops, um, the amount of emails I sent out, a handful of initiatives that I've been really pulling people in this organization and this community into. Um, and I feel like you're walking into the belly of the beast, right? You're an indigenous woman and it is a white-centric organization here at Hilltop. Once again, we're changing that, but you're helping us facilitate that change. Um, and honestly, we've been working together for about three weeks now. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I, already, <laughs> I already got a good sense that you, you're going to challenge people. You're going to love us. You're going to pull people in. And you have no problem calling people out. <laughs> and not everyone's going to like that. But why is it necessary for you to operate like this? And why is it necessary for organizations, not just Hilltop, but all organizations that have people like you? Well, just as you stated, challenge, love, pull people in and call people out. You notice that there's balance in that statement, mm -hmm. uh, a balance of accountability, but with love and a kind heart. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I also believe that the same way that we teach children to be kind to each other, we also have to educate anyone if we truly want them to hear our words, you know, mm -hmm. listen to my words. Mm -hmm. um, I've had many experiences where I've called out an unjust action or a statement and it wasn't taken the way that I wanted them to take it. Mm -hmm. So I had to start rethinking how I wanted them to hear me. Um, I've learned to try to make it more comprehensible within their own life experiences or something that's tangible for them to grasp. Um, believe me, I've had a lot of people of color get kind of frustrated with me when I <laughs> do it in a, in a sometimes loving way. Um, but it's important for me to, for it's important for them I, I get it. You know, it's important yeah. to call people in. Right? Well, it's, it's it's just important for me that what, what I'm sharing with them, that they're actually taking away with their heart, you mm -hmm. know, and understanding why. But there are also those times that you have to speak to someone and just call it out the way it is and the way that it needs to be called out. Sometimes there's no easy way to do that. Just holding people accountable. 
I have no problem doing it either way. <laughs> no, you don't. <laughs> you know, and I think that's so interesting because what you're talking about is so many times when we get into these courageous conversations or these conversations about race and culture, uh, a lot of white people will go to, I like to say, the reservoir of, of lines and defense mechanisms they have, which is, I want to listen more, right? Exactly. And, I, and I just want to hold space for you. I love the fact that you're, you're not just calling them out in to hear what you're saying and helping them process and understand why, but you're also calling them out. And I think it's important that other white people also do that as well. Yeah, well, I remember when I was about 25, mm -hmm. there was there was an amazing group of women of color who also work within the EC community here in Seattle. They were placed on my path, I'm sure for a purpose. Um, I was sitting in a training and I remember them speaking to me and my classmates saying that we had a very important job ahead of us mm. and that it, we would be the next generation of, of inspirers of people of color in the field of ECE. At that time, I didn't even think that I was worthy of that honor. I mean, I had two young children. Um, I was a marginalized young adult from the reservation with little experience of the urban life. Um, I didn't have much formal education, but I had a passion for working with children. Um, I had just been introduced to cultural relevant anti-bias practices, which was big in the early 90s. <laughs> and wanted, I wanted to see children of color feel like they were worthy of the success, being successful in our world. Yeah. I'm pretty sure that also having two young children who are by, I say bicultural, but actually they're tricultural because indigenous Indigenous from Mexico, Indigenous from the United States, and as well as the dominant culture, right? That's a whole nother, whole nother culture. No wonder you aspect. be speaking Spanish. Oh, yes, okay. yes, yes. <laughs> but I wanted, um, I wanted to make sure because I knew that they'd be walking on a path that sometimes wouldn't be um, paid for them to be successful. Exactly. Yeah. So. You know, the system wasn't built for us. Let's it, be honest. Yeah. You know? it, yeah, it was, it was, it was really hard. Like when I think my children is what made me go, I need to find out more because I don't want them to live the way I did, like not having that voice. Exactly. Yeah. And, um, I know that part of the question was you were asking, you know, how is it, how is it going to be like stepping out here at Hilltop? Um, I think me stepping out during this transitional time for Hilltop is important because I come with life experiences of being a marginalized child, mm -hmm. teen, adult, and a mother of children of color. Um, I've been in the field for over 30 years. But I don't, I'm not Um I started when I was two. Um, <laughs> but um, uh, the community has given me experiences in having courageous conversations with people who are having a hard time participating in it. And mm -hmm. I think um, I think I'm building a pretty good relationship with people here where um, I hope they understand that when I do call things out and I state something that might be. In, done in a way that was with love and in good intent, but mm -hmm. that it comes from a place of love and healing. So that they take it that way. So that if I do say something, they understand it's not me saying you're doing something bad, you yeah. know, yeah. or this is hurtful or, you know, so that they take it that way. And um, I like to say, I didn't choose the game, but the game chose me. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. So you're doing all of this work. You're, you're calling people in, you're calling people out. You're actively dismantling um, systems of oppression externally. You're also dismantling and in, in, in healing internally from the the years of suffoc suffocation and oppression that society, systems, individuals have placed upon you. So as you go through kind of this another iteration of your life. How are you protecting your body, your spirit, your soul during this process? That's a very good question. Um, and kind of reflecting on that, I think, I, I guess I'm lucky coming from a very resilient people. Mm -hmm. um, not only just as an indigenous person with cultural resilience, but just my family was very resilient in, in the way that they they survived. And um, I, I really rely a lot on my traditional crow mm -hmm. medicines to regain who I am. Mm -hmm. um, I burn cedar. It reminds me of my home back in Montana and all the healing sweat baths. Mm -hmm. um, I don't get to do sweat baths here traditionally like I do back home, but when I burn the cedar, it just reminds me of the healing that I get when I do go into the sweat bath and the way that when we return into the sweat bath is shaped like a womb of mother. And so mm -hmm. when, when I get in there, it's, it's so the smell just takes me back to that. Mm -hmm. yeah, and I also burn sweet grass. Um, sometimes it's known as the kindness medicine. But um, if you've ever seen it, it's it's a braid. It's 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 it has twenty one strands, mm -hmm. and each each seven strands represents something. The first one represents the generations behind us, our parents, our grandparents, 
and who we are and what we are is because of them. The next seven represents the, the secret teachings, love, respect, honesty, courage, wisdom, truth, and humility. The old ones teach us how simple and powerful these teachings are. Love is a very simple teaching. Uh, respect is a powerful teaching. Humility, a beautiful teaching. But when we truly understand that 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 those things are so simple to come by. Mm. Um, and then there's like this last seven strands represent the generations in front of us, our children, our grandchildren, and those children yet to be born. And that's why it's so important because everything we do to Mother Earth is going to affect them one day, mm-hmm. which is also why probably I work with children. <laughs> um, also, I reach out to people that I refer to as my empowerment crew. Um, I usually will reach out to them after I've done some critical reflection about what's happened because I, I try to make sure that I'm seeing and hearing the situation before I respond. I usually try not to respond in in the moment because mm-hmm. we get heated and passionate, right? <laughs> um, I think having purpose purposeful friendships with people who are in the same journey as me and where I can sit with them and have positive mindsets to help keep me on track. Mm-hmm. Um, they also remind me of the work that we're doing together and that I'm not alone on this journey. I mean, growing up on the reservation in Montana, I've had experiences of oppression and discrimination. So this is nothing new for me. The only difference is now I have a voice and I know how to try to enrich people's lives with an understanding they want it that is yeah so you mentioned that voice piece Mm -hmm. and i know that it's amplified but how do we continue to nurture that um you know specifically your your colleagues in not just your white colleagues your your colleagues of color right because white supremacy the 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 best thing about how it operates is that it pits us against each other so what can i do to support you um i think just um, just being there. Mm. I mean, just standing in a room. I mean, a lot of it doesn't even have to do with talking, just a look. Mm-hmm. I can look yeah. across the room and I'm pretty sure that people of color know when we hear something, we look at each other to make sure, wait, did that sound right, that sound right to you? Wait, hold on a second. And, and then, you know, reflecting afterwards, um, you know, I, I've had a couple of instances since we've been here and, um, we laugh about it a little bit. And I was explaining to one of the younger girls, I said, I've learned to laugh at things yeah. and it's not a joke. And like, it's not important, but it was, it's been my way to, um, humor has been my way to heal myself too. Exactly. I mean, there's lots of things I could list on how I heal myself, but humor and music and, and that look, Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, um, yeah. So I think that for me, it's just knowing that I'm in a room with people that have the same understanding. Mm-hmm. I also like to um, question people when I hear people not responding to something, yeah. I'd be like, Hey, I heard this. What do you think? Like to, to stimulate their brain to wait a minute, maybe that wasn't right, you know? So I I, I might plant seeds sometimes. <laughs> I don't, could, could be a good thing, could right. be, you know? You know, so then you kind of see where people's mindset is too, you know, and then is this someone that I can have in my empowerment crew, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I appreciate the opportunity to, to have this conversation with you, um, to shed some love and some insight into our listeners as well as my own growth. Mm-hmm. And um I'm just looking forward to sustaining and uplifting you, uh, you in your journey here. I'm excited to be on this journey. It's a big, it's a big, beautiful thing that's happening. So I'm Absolutely. excited to be a part of it. Cool. We'll be right back. Hilltop Children's Center is a high-quality preschool, after-school program, and professional development institute of early learning and inquiry, serving the Seattle community since 1971. Together, we are working with the next generation of inventors, leaders, thinkers, artists, and social activists. For more information on our professional development and community outreach, including workshops, presentations, blogs, coaching and consulting, and of course, this NAPCAST, please visit www.hilltopcc.org. All right, so... You got you just got an opportunity to listen to everything all the other educators said. Um, so what were your thoughts? Yeah, you know, that was that was fun to listen to. Um and you know, I, I guess starting with the first person that I heard was Teresa. And you know, I've only known her limitedly, but I always knew that there was like some sort of connection between us two, almost like, and I think I told her this, um, uh, last weekend when, uh, when we were all out, 
I was like, I feel like you are one of my aunts and, <laughs> and, you know, there, cause there's so much similarity with her spirit and her demeanor and energy that just reminds me of my family. And the biggest thing that resonated with me was when she was talking about, um, simplicity and balance, mm. you know, there's these, the seven concepts. Yep. They're so simple, but yet they're really, I mean, outwardly they're looking very simple, but inwardly they're hard to practice and they're hard to be disciplined in. And I feel like that's what a lot of what we're going to talk about today, Mike, is like, mm. these concepts are super simple and it's like, yeah, I get that. But then it's like, well, go do it yeah. eight hours a day. <laughs> right. Go do it. Right. I mean, pushups are simple. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, once you start doing it and doing it and doing it well, mm-hmm. then, you know, it's like it, it eventually gets difficult. I feel like you're about to bust out. I know. Right. <laughs> That's why I did that. Yeah. Um, and then the idea of balance. What was it she said? Like, I'm going to pull you in and call you out. Oh, yeah. And she does that, that was I was like, this is what I have been striving. Like, mm-hmm. I think it was like maybe three sentences she said. And those it's like, that's what I strive to be as a person, you know, like I want to call people out and pull them in at the same time. There's exactly. that balance yeah. and it's simple. It's simply said. And at the same time, if I want people to hear my message then I have to change a little bit about myself of how they're hearing that message, I think there's something like yeah, that. She yeah, said. definitely. All I got from her was that everyone needs to go out and get themselves a Teresa. Yeah. Right? <laughs> but you know, you can't have her. She's mine. Yeah. <laughs> She's ours. Yeah. yeah. And then, you know, with Pachi, my homie Pachi, Pachi, when you listen to this, thank you for uh, participating. I love you. It was so good to hear your voice. And, you know, there was that idea of the space idea Yeah. of having space. And then as I think it was you had said, like, you know, this might not put Hilltop in the right light or whatever, but... I think what Pachi was getting at, if internally we can call out our vulnerabilities, mm. then we own them. Nobody else does. Yeah. Right? It's not anybody else pointing the finger. It's like we're pointing the finger inwardly and we are owning it and we it's that much easier to take action. We need to take ownership of it. And ownership, yeah, yeah ownership yeah. and action actionable steps with it. Mm. And it's not just um uh, I, don't, I lost my there. <laughs> but I like what you're saying because what, what, what I'm always preaching is that you can't distance yourself from this work, right? You right. To, it's not just the organization needs to do the the trauma informed work, for example. It's, it's also some personal accountability in making sure that you're delivering trauma, and I'm just going to use this as an example, mm-hmm. but trauma uh, informed or trauma sensitive or trauma responsive right there's so many words i use here curriculum and it's also your responsibility to hold leadership and the organization accountable in delivering trauma responsive systems and it's also your responsibility to um to engage with the community and build relationships and build rapport because that's what communities of color are so rooted in mm-hmm. it's also your responsibility as um, as an educator, regardless of your race, in order to build those, those pathways. So, you know, it's, it's this balance, as you were saying, in the space that you need to create where, it, yes, it is the organization responsibility, but you're also part of the organization. You're also part yeah. of it. And you can't distance yourself from this work. And can I, yeah, let me add on to that of what your responsibility is. It's also, I don't know. I don't. I can't break it down to a percentage, but it's your responsibility to check yourself. Mm, mm-hmm. You know, and like make sure that what you're doing is still applicable. And exactly. because that's why you know a lot of trauma exists because institutions have just repeated the same mm-hmm. thing over and over and over. And it's almost like this, um, like spiritual genocide. Yeah, where it's just taken the spirit and. Yeah, and the culture uh, 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 away from people of color. Um, Especially given the the topic that we're talking about a new school and new children. You know, I heard something the other day that, that resonated with me. You know, we, we say IEP plans, right? Individual education plans. And when we talk about that, it's specifically for those who have been identified with a learning disability or, mm-hmm. or something like that. And it's like, why why don't we give that to 
every child. Yeah. Right? If this is a specialized individual tailor plan to support um, each and every single child, we should all have that. That should be a basic. Right. And that's why it's not the cookie cutter approach. Um, and this is why we engage in emerging curriculum. I was going to say that's, that's <laughs> the bread and butter of emerging curriculum, mm-hmm. what, you're de- uh, what you're describing there. Cool. I, I cut you off. I don't know if there was anything else no. you wanted to say. Oh, okay. <laughs> All right. Um, so yeah, thanks for the, thanks for your reflections. I, I got a couple of questions I uh, I do want to get into, and I think it actually once again it's quite fitting that this episode is what new school, new year, new children, or something like that. Um, in my head, I'm like, oh, this is such a good title, and then I have to write it out a million times. <laughs> I'm just right. like, oh. Well, and I think we've touched on a lot of these concepts before, but. I think today's is pretty succinct. Mm. And especially since you, you're doing this, what, like the second time in four weeks or, or eight weeks? or it's, <laughs> Yeah, new it's school, new, new kids. Yeah. <laughs> right. So talk to me about how is it like working with kind of a new team in your first week while you're still at Hilltop? And then how has the transition been to this new school, this new environment? Well, I guess... I feel more confident speaking on to the transition to new school, new environment. Um, and we kind of talked, you, you mentioned it with, I think either, uh, I think it was Teresa. I didn't realize how, how saturated in whiteness I was, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> until moving on to this new school. Mm. Yet, uh, daybreak star preschool program. Um, and being the director of it, you know, I've never been in a director position. And yes, I have been in leadership positions because yeah, yeah. <laughs> we all, it, wherever you are, you are, you are in uh, education, you are a leader. And you should take ownership of that. Mm-hmm. Right. And just before you go any further, Daybreak Stars is what? Could you just give us some? Yeah, it's uh, it's the only indigenous-based curriculum preschool program in uh, Seattle, Washington. And we work with um, underneath the umbrella organization of United Indians of all nations. So we have a lot of different tribes representing, and I've met a lot of people from different mm-hmm. tribes. Mm-hmm. And that was one of the first things that somebody was told me. It was like, you know, what's really cool about Seattle is that you have this whole mess of like tribes coming together mm-hmm. and they find community in places like Daybreak Star. And then also come to find out, I, even though I've prided myself on being part native, you know, I didn't know what was out there. Yeah. And there are quite a bit of programs here in Seattle that um, that serve uh, Native families and, and people of Native heritage. And so that was, you know, we got people from from Crow Nation, from uh, Blackfeet, Shumash as myself, uh, Haida, Nisqually, like everything. And, and mm-hmm. it's uh, there's some Sioux. Uh, Choctaw, it it just goes on, and it's really it's even in this little microcosm of in the, this pocket of Seattle, it's almost reflective of the United States of how diverse we can all be in this one little pocket, yeah. and still uphold one another. Now we just got to work on that on the larger scale, <laughs> of the United States. But yeah, but yeah, Mike, it was really um, the experience has been eye opening for me. Um, you know, the realities we face in terms of like licensing standards and um, what the, you know, each school's own thing that they have to deal with, the paperwork load as a director, <laughs> which is different. Did I tell you about my white power incident? Nope. Already? Oh, yeah. So day two, mm. I'm cleaning out my office and I'm like organizing stuff, getting my plants all settled. Yeah. And all of a sudden I, I, I hear this White power, white power, oh, white boy. power. And I look out the, I grab my walkie-talkie that we're all supposed to have, and I'm like waiting for a message on it. And I look out the window because it faces the parking lot a little bit, and and I see this like black car speed off, and these scrawny arms like pumping a fist saying white power, and um, and I see one of the elders like wanting like you know just really furious. And and so I come downstairs and they're like, ah, oh, it's these same teens that always come up here and they, they just want to park and they want to drink their beer and mm. like do stuff. Mm. But we tell them like, hey, we're closed because it's COVID and we don't want you doing that on this land. Yeah. You know, that has been ceded to us by the city of Seattle. And and they don't they don't 
understand the sort of, and I'm only just learning and understanding the importance of this space, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and it's not a part of Discovery Park. You know, it's there, sure. Yeah, yeah. Sure, the roots and grass and whatnot share space with one another, but there is specific, nat- it's specific land for this native community and, 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 and cultural center. And so, you know, these, these <laughs> entitled teenagers, yeah, white yeah. teenagers just like speed off and they're like white power and yelling out, like, we're going to buy this land when I get my money and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, Sorry. <laughs> I don't know. So that was a very eye opening experience, yeah. even though Hilltop's like situated on the canal and there's mm-hmm. enough things to go on there. Yeah. I've never experienced that. And so being in this community of people of color mm-hmm. and on day two experiencing that. And then they're, and then there's like, Oh yeah, they're back again. <laughs> I was just like, what? Like, I don't, yeah. <laughs> I don't, I was like, how do we respond to this? You know? Yeah. So yeah, it was, um, welcome to America. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, yeah, I don't know what to say more about that <laughs> other than it. Yeah. It was just, it it was odd. Mm. And I wonder if it's because, you know, coming from that white saturated place or workplace of Hilltop. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, these are all pertinent questions that you always have to reflect, right? As reflective practitioners, these are stuff that we always have to think about and and look at not just the, the people who are in our spaces, but what we believe in, what... Mm-hmm what our thought process is and it's easier to when you're surrounded and you're centered in whiteness to give that look. Right. And I think to get that look and be like, Oh, they're not like, Oh, we're okay. Cause you know, we're, we're majority white. And the same thing that we've done where we've been sitting in team meetings and we hear some white stuff and we're just, we just look at each other. And we just go, do we just hear what we know here? Right. We don't call that out, but you know, it's, <laughs> it's, you don't see those those big pendulum swings when you are situated in whiteness or you're yeah because it's almost this unspoken word that we kind of just swim you know it's cultural racism you kind of just swim in it and when you then go to a community of color that's predominantly of color right you you notice it more mhm yeah very much so mm. and even and I just, um, there was another incident where, uh, and this was a positive one. I met, you know, it's interesting. It's mm-hmm. like, there's so, so many of the guys there named Mike. Yeah, right. So Mike, yeah, <laughs> yeah, just easy to uh, mm. just remember their names. Don't cheat on me. <laughs> <laughs> I won't. And uh, this one Mike, he's from, uh, he, he's Haida Nation. Mm. And, and he, um, he asked me, he was like, so you're native right and i'm like yeah and he's like where well where are you from and i'm like uh the chumash and he's like oh there's not you don't see many of you guys and then we and then i started talking about the california indian act of like i think it's 1860 or i don't know i forget i always get the last little bit of it mixed up with another racist act but (laughs) they uh um and he was yeah he was like oh yeah you know like we talked about how it was easier and i did that in that blog and i kind of uh like it was easier to say for natives for the Chumash to say that they were Mexican than it was to own up to their native blood. Yeah. And then, and he was like, yeah, you guys were like being hunted. (laughs) And so it was like, if you didn't convert to Catholicism, then, or go through the whitewashing principles and doctrine, then you were, you were the enemy. And so he was like, yeah, there's not that many people who can like identify that within themselves. And so then he asked me about, you know how I knew that, and was I just assuming? Mm. And and I kind of gave him a little bit of the family back history, and he was like, oh, "Okay." And then, yeah, it's been cool to like running into into him ever since, and yeah. and people have been very very welcoming, and and also <laughs> they're like the biggest thing which I encountered as a preschool teacher, toddler teacher. Like they look at me with like no one could see my face, but this inquisitive look, right? And just they're like. Oh, usually we see women in this position. Mm. I'm like, I know. Yeah. I get that. I've been getting that for the last 14 years. 
And so they're like, I don't, you know, and there's a lot of these old native guys that are around and they're like, I don't know. It just feels, I feel very welcomed mm. and, you know, and I just really want to like make sure I do a good job for the organization and, yeah. and our people. So, yeah. So speaking as a male, <laughs> as a male in this position, right? Going from uh, a Tala teacher to a, a a director, right? From someone who was, I guess, delivering uh, emerging curriculum to one that's overseeing it, because Hilltop and Daybreak, to a certain extent, right? We both do uh, different versions, right, for our different populations and different iterations of emerging curriculum. When you heard earlier in the episode from Jen, just about how different that was for her as being a new educator, as someone coming into emerging curriculum, and she didn't really have that background in that. So how do you ease someone into emerging curriculum when they have so many other things that they're trying to get used to, right? New school, new children, new faces, all this other things. Yeah. Um or maybe even how did you ease yourself into it? Because for, I know it was 14 years ago, but yeah. you were coming over from, you know, Wazoo, uh-huh. uh, Goku. Goku. You know, I think, I, I mean, obviously during that time, as a young person, I had, I had an, I had a book knowledge of what emergent curriculum did. I didn't get to like live it out and mm-hmm. just practice it. Mm-hmm. And, and I'll get really uh, for new people, I want to ask them like who are new to emergent curriculum, like I want to ask them, what does learning mean and look like to you? Mm-hmm. And then I also, you know, this going back into, um, I only had the book knowledge of it. I like to use the analogy and example that like people who play instruments, they don't just sit and read all the book, right? They don't study music theory. They don't study the circle of fifths or become familiar treble and bass clefs before handling an instrument. Mm -hmm. They have to play it. They have to know their way around it. Yeah. And, and then all the other stuff will fall into place. Mm. So if we take the instrument as a classroom environment and then all those other, and then all the music theory and the circle of fifths is like your school readiness, quote unquote, Mm. like let, that like let them experiment with what school is first mm-hmm. and and yeah you know this is this is where I, like why i think emergent curriculum is a mutual strength and benefit for the child and adult in young in early childhood education and emergent curriculum reminds and maybe even permits us adults to slow down and watch mm-hmm. And in that outwardly like simplistic approach, we curate relationships with and among children, kind of like Teresa said. And this is where we can glean what is important to the child, you know, their developmental needs, um, like what, you know, what their interests and, and what the next steps can be. And really for for new people to emergent curriculum, I want them to see it as like really fun because mm-hmm. it is fun. Yeah. <laughs> I think a lot of curriculums out there are very boring. Yeah. You got to count the blocks. You got to make sure you have the certain amount of Legos. Yeah. It's like curriculum should be seen as fun and emergent curriculum, especially so. And, and because I really do think that emergent curriculum is fun. I've had fun with it for 14 years and been yeah. able to like just riff on it from like over time. I mean, you get to be a scientist in the class. And the class is your lab. Yeah. The children are your research assistants. Oof. And it only took you a 17 cent raised in order to get you outside of the classroom. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs>